At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? This morning, if you have a Bible or a chunk device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to 1 Timothy. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be in this book, 1 Timothy. And so I thought it'd be appropriate if we uh, open there this morning. And um, as you are opening there, and I'm opening there as well, uh, I'm excited for this sermon series. I'm so excited. If you have friends or loved ones uh, that have had questions about the church, uh, this is the series that you want to invite them to. Maybe, maybe you have friends that are like, why, why, do you go, why do you get up every Sunday morning and go to that place? What, what is, what's the big deal? Like This would be a, one of those sermon series that you want to invite your friends to so they can learn a little bit more about what the church is, why, why has God established the church, and, and how is it supposed to function in the world we live in today. And uh, so you want to be a part of this series. But you know, as we get ready to dive into this, of, of all the institutions in the world, right, there are some great institutions that that are knocking it out of the park, right? There are some institutions that have been founded and, and developed and, and are doing a lot of great work, but of all the institutions in the world, there are three of them that were created and ordained by God. Only three of those institutions that exist in the world were created and ordained by God. Do you know what those three institutions are? Well, the family, Right, God, God instituted the family in marriage and family and kids. That, that was ordained by God, and that was done all the way back in the beginning parts of Genesis. The second institution that God ordained and God created was the institution of government. Because God wants us to have rulers over us that uh, are overseers over us that help us provide and live lives of peace and also help us live in this realm of justice when we see people step outside of God's design and do other things. We need government to come in and to help uh, give some guidance to some of that. But then the third institution that we know from Scripture that God ordained and developed was the institution of the church. See, it's these institutions that God has given us where God lays out the plans and the purposes that he has for these institutions. But it seems like in our day that these institutions are coming under attack. These three institutions are becoming deconstructed. Now, I don't know if you've heard of this, this term deconstructionism. It's this new idea, it's this, this thought, it's not really a new idea. It's this thought or this, this practice that people are beginning to take a look at, at things that have existed for a long period of time. So imagine it's, it's kind of like you buying a house that was built in 1986 that ha hasn't been renovated, hasn't been updated. So you buy this house, you go into this house, and you begin to investigate all the different parts about this house, right? You begin to go look in the bathrooms, and you look at the kitchen, and you look at all these other different places. And so you take the house, you break it down into pieces, and then you, then you begin to investigate what needs to stay what has become outdated and what is no longer useful. So then you begin going through the house and you begin making changes. So maybe the kitchen 
even though it still has a functioning stove and a functioning uh, washing machine and a refrigerator, you decide that it's no longer up to date, so you kick those things out and you bring new appliances in. Right, or you go into the uh, den and you see that the walls that were once painted in mauve, you're like, that really doesn't go today because you know, like everybody's doing gray. Right, so you decide you're going to get rid of the mauve and you're going to paint it over with, with gray. So I say all that to say that deconstructionism is doing that to institutions or things that have been around for a long while. And so what's happening when we take a look at things like the church, deconstructionism, or those that are deconstructing the church, they come in and they say, well, even the institutions, all of them, they're like, well, marriage is antiquated, right? It's something that was good years and years and years ago, but we don't need marriage today. Hey, there's no purpose for marriage, especially if marriage is just going to end in divorce, And so people are taking the institution that God has given, they're deconstructing it, and they're throwing out what they don't like, and they're saving what they do like. This is happening with the government, this is happening with the church, and so people are disassembling the practices, the traditions, these belief systems, and they're keeping what they like, and they're throwing out what they feel no longer fits. Some people feel that these institutions have lost their youthfulness, usefulness in modern life. And so they can be dismissed or improved upon. And over the course of the next several weeks in this series, we're going to be taking a look at the institution of the church. And while many in the world today want to deconstruct the church, we are going to look at the biblical blueprint for the church We're going to allow God's word to be the standard by which we evaluate not only our own personal individual connection to the church, but also we're going to look at our church. And we're going to do some deep diving into looking at maybe there's something in scripture that we're missing. Or maybe there's a way in which we've drifted away from what God has called us to And so this sermon series is going to be for you individually, but it's also going to be for us as we look at God's blueprint. As we look around, we see that there are several people, and maybe you found yourself uh, deconstructing the church. Maybe you've come in and, and you've come into church with a critical eye of saying, hey, some of these things, like traditions need to go, truth needs to stay. And, and what we see that's happening, that there are people that are walking down harmful practices because they're walking through trying to deconstruct the church. I want to share with you three ways in which I see people trying to walk in this season of deconstructing the church and it's they're walking in harmful practices first some see the church as a place where they are to be accepted with autonomy right so the church is supposed to accept me for who i am which is true They are to accept me as an individual autonomous person that really doesn't need anyone else. So I'm autonomous. I'm apart from that. So therefore, because I'm autonomous, the church should have no authority or no account. I am no longer accountable to the church. Does that make sense? So I can come to church and you have to accept me for all that I am. But I don't have to bow to the authority of the church, nor do I have to be accountable 
to the church. That's dangerous. That's so dangerous. Because we, we are a community. The church is a community of believers where we live together. We're accountable to one another. Where I look at your life and you look at my life and you say, hey, I, I, I see some things in your life that might be damaging or harmful. Well, you're not the boss of me. Right? We, we say that and we push back against the church because we just want to be autonomous. Well, that flies in the face of the church who God's called us to be, which we will see in this series. The second, I see there are some that approach the church with a consumerism disposition, meaning that I'm going to go to this church because of what this church can do for me, what ministries this church has that fit my needs and my desires, and when the church no longer meets my needs and my desires, I'm going to leave that church and I'm going to go to another church. And I'm going to hop around from church and church to meet my needs. And I'm going to treat it as though I do other things that I, where I'm a consumer of. The third are a group of people that have a deep desire to know God and walk with him intimately. So their hearts are right. They, they, they want to know God. But they become more concerned about being the church than going to church. Where they live and they say, I just want to know God. I just want to know God. I want, I want to be with him. I want to know him. And they come to church and it feels like their church experience is too stifling for them. Right, all that stuff's so old, it's out of date. Why do they, why do they have teams? Why do, why do we have committees? Why, why do we do this? All of that stuff seems crazy. Instead of like doing church, why can't we just be the church? Right? Which is not a bad thing. At its heart. So this group, what they do then is they're deconstructing the church. So they're like, you know what, I'm just not going to do that because the church doesn't, it's not as missional as it needs to be. And so they pull away from the church. They love God and they love people. And so they begin to go do the things that the church is supposed to be doing without doing it with the church. And guess what happens? They become overwhelmed. Because they see the need of the world around them. And they're like, the people are desperate. People are hungry. But I'm only one person. I can't feed all of the need. I can't meet all of the needs of the world. So what happens? They get frustrated. They get tired. They get distracted. They get overwhelmed. And then they stop doing the things that they're called to do. See, they try to be the church without the church. You see, there is no plan B. Jesus came to establish a church, which we're going to see in just a, mo a moment. The church is God's plan. This is God's design. He's the one that gets to determine what the church looks like and how the church should act. But this morning, let me remind you, let us not be too quick to give up on the church. But let's remember a couple things of what the Bible says about the church. First, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says this. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what do we learn? Is that Jesus is the one that's building the church. You and I are not building the church. The church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the one, Jesus is the one that is building his church. And if he builds it, there's nothing that can come against it. Nothing will destroy it. 
So, so deconstructionism isn't going to kill the church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, we see this. Paul writes and he says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things the church. He's referring to Jesus. So there we see that Jesus is the head of the church. And thirdly, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes again and says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, he might be preeminent. So Jesus is central and preeminent in the church. The church is so important to Jesus. This is what he came to die for was the church. The Bible also gives us this imagery of the church as the bride of Christ. Right? If there's something that Jesus cares for so much, you know he's going to protect it. He's going to provide for it. He's going to give leadership to it. He's also going to give structure to it. Let me remind you, the church is not a building, but the church is people, which we'll see even more so in, in a moment. So in this series, we're going to look at 1 Timothy to help us build our biblical understanding of the church and why does it matter. See, 1 Timothy is a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who is a new pastor in the church that was meeting in Ephesus. So Paul writes this letter to help him establish the church. I love what Paul writes, and we'll dive into this a little bit deeper in a moment. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes this. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but if I am writing these things, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He's writing this so that we might know how to behave in the household of God. How, how is it that we should live? What we need to be reminded is that Jesus, what's going on here, is that Jesus is the foundation of the church. Right? He came to establish the church. He's building the church. But then we see that in the course of biblical history, God sent the apostles then to lay the framework upon the foundation of Christ. They began to, to have the church grow, and so they lay the groundwork. They give the meat. They give the bones. They give the structure to the church. And now what's happening is the, the church has been established and it's growing and now it's moving on to the next generation. So this is a massive baton pass. The apostles were called specifically and been given the spirit specifically to do the, ter- the work of establishing the, the, fu- the functionality and uh, the, um, the structure for the church to grow. And so now it's going on to the next generation. And it moves on from the next generation, next generation, next generation. And then you and I inherited what has already been built upon. And so this is extremely important because it's this first generation now, or this next generation, where they've been given the specific task of carrying on and living in the structure that has been inherited to them. And so Paul's given instructions of how believers are to live in the church. The word that the Bible uses for church is the Greek word ekklesia, which is the Greek word which literally means the assembly of the called out ones. See, the church, ekklesia, is the assembling 
of the called out ones. So not a building, but it's a gathering. It's a gathering of those that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gathering of those that have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And when we take a look at this idea of the church in Scripture, we we kind of see two levels of it or two layers of the church. First, we see the global church, right, which which is we become members in the global church at the moment of salvation. When we come to place faith in the work of Jesus Christ, we become members of the global church. So that means that right now, if I were to go to Australia and I were to to meet a believer, that believer would be my brother or sister in Christ, right? So there should be some connection, there should be some heart connection with that believer because we share a common family, which we're gonna see in just a moment. But then there's this other idea of a local church. This is where we gather to worship in community in a geographic location. You see, Paul taught that believers are to be connected to a local church. And this is evident in the fact that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who's giving instructions specifically to Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus in a geographic location. So that's exactly what Paul has done. Paul was planting the church. He actually planted the church in Ephesus. He established it there, developed it, and then moved on to plant other churches and then established Um, another pastor to come in and to lead to shepherd that flock. So 1 Timothy was written by Paul to explain God's plan for the church, giving him instructions of how to lead the family of faith. And over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at God's word and see this. But today, as we come to God's word, what we're going to see is that the church is a family that upholds the truth, that upholds the truth and spreads the gospel. The church is a family, a spiritual family, where we uphold the truth and we spread the gospel. And we're going to see this beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Look with me. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and of Christ Jesus our Lord. The first thing I want us to see, the first truth from this passage, is that we need to understand, if we hope to have a biblical understanding of of church, is that we first need to understand that in the church, we are spiritual family. As we begin this letter, we see that Paul is opening this letter in very standard form, right? It's by giving a typical salutation But then he goes on and gives a greeting and and words of endearment. And then he established himself as the author, but the author that comes with authority. And Paul is establishing the fact that his authority is not self-derived. He's not saying, this is what I think that I want to share with you. These These are my thoughts on the church. No, he's saying this authority that he has comes from God. And he's just walking in obedience to that which God has called him to do. So Paul did not consider himself an apostle by his own aspirations or his own choosing, but it was by God's command that he would serve in this capacity. And so as he understands and establishes that first, that authority, first of all, that authority comes from God, but that he is an apostle, 
with a very specific purpose to help give meat or give structure to the church. He then goes on to share a couple things. First, he describes God and Jesus and shares about their attributes. He says that God is our Savior, so God is our deliverer. God is the one that delivered his people from, exod- or from uh, slavery in Egypt. God is the one that continually is our deliverer, our Savior. But then he goes on and refers to Jesus as our hope. Jesus is the one that has been the long-awaited Messiah that has now come, that is our hope. Our hope for not only salvation, but our hope for eternal blessing. And so through our hope, or through our faith in God our Savior and Jesus our hope, that is the requirements for entrance entrance and acceptance into the family of God. Look at just those two short, um, short verses, the familial language that Paul uses. Right? He, he says not only is God our Savior, but God is our Father. Timothy is not just a disciple, but he was a son to Paul. These are not random nouns haphazardly selected to, to work together, but what Paul is doing is he's seeking to communicate a new reality that is present in the life of a believer. When we come to place our faith in Jesus Christ, we be, in, in an instant, we are adopted into the family of God, and our family, our spiritual family, looks different. That in some way, through our faith in Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we now have access to God the Father. That's something we all share equally. We all come to the same place. So it doesn't matter if you have more gifts, talents, abilities. None of that matters. When we come to the foot of the cross and we believe in Jesus, we become spiritual family. We are no longer strangers. We're no longer mere acquaintances. We're not simply friends. We're not even blood relatives. We're something deeper than that. We have an eternal bond that is held together by the power of the Spirit to redeem us, but then place us in the household of faith. What's so great about spiritual family is that through faith in Christ, God brings together people that should never be friends. Think about that. What God does is he brings together people that should never be friends. Look around the room this morning. Just look look around. This is your family. This is your spiritual family, right? Outside of this place, would any of us be friends? Maybe. Maybe. But what's so special about this place It's that the only thing that we share in common is Jesus. And it's that what tunes our hearts together and calls us to live together in community. And our community looks different than what the community of the world has to offer. I mean, even take a look at Timothy and Paul. There's no way these two guys should ever be friends. They lived in different circles. They had different lives before coming to Christ. Remember Paul? Paul was like a religious elite. Not only was he like a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was also a Roman citizen. Right? This guy walked around in different circles. Right? He was in the movers and the shakers of the world. Timothy? Timothy was a nobody. 
Because Timothy's mom was a Jew. Timothy's dad was a Greek. So that meant no one accepted him. He was a nobody. There's no way that poor little Timothy in the worldly standard, who was a half-breed child, should ever have a relationship with Paul. But what allows them for Paul to say to Timothy, you are my spiritual son? It's only the gospel. That's it. It's the gospel that allows us to cross racial boundaries and love those who are our brothers and sisters. It is the gospel that allows us to cross gender boundaries and to to create spaces where we lift each other up, not based on our differences, but based on our commonality. It is the gospel that allows us to cross economical barriers and just be able to be each other's part of each other's family. That's the power of the gospel. That's the beauty of the church. It allows us to be more than friends. It allows us to be family. I've been the beneficiary of spiritual family all throughout my life. Especially as... um, Sarah and I began our family and began moving to the different places that God called us to. Like there was a season of our life where we lived in a small town in West Kentucky where my, the population of my high school had more people than the town that we lived in. Totally different, right? So I'm an alien coming into a different community and guess what? I was a part of a church. And in that community that was so different than my experience, God used the church to be spiritual family. There's always been church, people in the church where God has provided for me spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers, spiritual sisters and spiritual brothers, spiritual sons and spiritual daughters. My kids have had spiritual grandparents, especially when we lived far away from all family. My kids have had spiritual aunts and spiritual uncles. Those that have been there with us that did life with us, that rejoiced with us, that cried with us, where we got, our, got down in the trenches and did work together. That's family. So it doesn't matter where we go. Even when we lived on the East Coast, we moved from small town rural America where our kids had southern accents. We moved to the East Coast where we were in a post-Christian culture, but still the church was there. The church was there to provide for my family. I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. He says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ." Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In Christ, we have spiritual family. In Christ, we are spiritual family. And I want us to flesh that out a little bit more as we go through the series. But we've got to receive that message this morning. That you're not autonomous. You're not autonomous when you come into this place. When you place faith in Jesus Christ, you are deeply connected to the others that call this place home. 
And that connection runs deeper than any, any earthly connection. So established, having established that the church is a family, Apostle Paul now goes on to talk about two other essential characteristics that define the church. The next, we're going to move to chapter 3, verse 14. This is what Paul says. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing you these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So Paul has a deep connection to the church at Ephesus, right? He has a deep connection not only to the church, but he has a deep connection to Timothy. And it is his deep desire to get to them, to encourage him. For not only Paul would be encouraged to see Timothy, but Timothy would be encouraged by seeing Paul, right? We, we understand that in our own earthly relationships, someone that we have a deep connection to, we long to see them. We want to be with them, and that's exactly what Paul is saying. But he also understands that, there, that God's providence may not allow Paul to come to see Timothy or the church at Ephesus anytime soon. So he says, if I delay in coming, I'm writing you these things so that you know, might know how it is that you are to behave. How it is in this family of God, since we're spiritual family, how is it that we're supposed to behave in this place? Well, Timothy gives us, or Paul gives us, how we are to model and confess the truth. That's what we're called to do. That's how we are to behave, is to model and confess the truth. And he gives us a, a couple of imageries here. He gives us a lot of in- imageries here. First, he gives us the imagery of saying the church is the household of God. In the household of God, in the way of understanding in this time of a household, a household didn't just consist of a husband and a wife and children. No, a household was much bigger than that. It was a collection of people that may have some relatedness together, but they lived together doing life together as a household under a master. And inside of the church, we live together cooperating and and working amongst each other, not as though any of us are the head, but it's the household of God. So God is the one that has ultimate authority over everything that happens inside of the household of God. So we have this connectedness to him. And so as we live in the household of God, as we model this truth, we live caring for one another, being stewards of that which God has given us, knowing that it is him that is in control. The second, we see this imagery that the church is of the living God. When we gather and worship together and we give our lives to the living God, we know that God is ever-present. We don't serve a God that's dead. We we don't serve a God that's distant. We serve a God that is ever-living and he's ever-present. And so when we need to understand, when we are interacting with one another as children of the household of God, in the church of the living God, that God is present here. He sees how we interact with one another. He understands when we hold grudges against our brothers and sisters. He knows that, he feels that, and he is the living God. And so we are to live in such a way that we understand that he's present. Right, like as, as children, think about growing up in your home if you had a brother or sister Right? There were certain things that you would do when mom and dad weren't looking. Right? 
wet willies, other things. You, know, you, you do those things when you didn't think mom and dad were looking, but when mom and dad were looking, you were on your best behavior. There's no way that you would smack your brother or sister up the backside of the head if your parents were looking, right? Right, because you know they say it, and then you be disciplined for it. In some way, in a similar way, that's, that's what Paul is trying to talk about here. Like, we got to be reminded that God is ever-present. And so we, we model our lives after that fact. Like, I'm going to treat you as though Jesus is present right beside you. He's watching how we interact and how we care for one another. But moving on, he also, not only do we model the truth, but we also confess the truth. So the truth is, again, let me remind you what the truth is. Truth is, we're part of God's household and God is ever present here. Those are two truths. But then we also need to look at the truth that we confess. You see, truth in Timothy's day, which we're going to see over the course of this series, is that truth was under attack, just as it is in our day. We live in a current world that only, only believes and accepts sub, subjective truth claims. That, that, that is to say... There is no overarching, abiding truth that we all must come under authority of. No, subjective truth says that I have my truth and you have your truth. Have you heard those words? Like you have your truth. You walk in your truth. I'll have my truth. That's a terrible, that's terrible. Because there is no such thing as subjective truth. What the Bible is telling us here is that there is a truth. And that all subjective truth needs to bow to the truth. This is what Paul says. Right? I want you to know how to live in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Right? What Paul is saying is this church is established upon something that the world cannot destroy, something that is so strong that it is by the power of God, by the words of God, that it was created and it was developed. Paul describes the truth that defines the church by using two terms, first pillar and then buttress. These are both strong words that provide vivid imagery, especially in Ephesus. At Ephesus, there were a lot of massive buildings. As you walk the streets, you could see massive architectural things going on. And, and what Paul is saying is the truth that we believe, the truth that God has established, this truth is like a pillar. Right? In order to have massively big structures, you have to have strong pillars and you have to have buttresses. Okay? Buttresses are the, the foundation, the things that hold the pillars together. Right, so what Paul is saying is that the truth is not subjective. The truth is defined already by God. It has been established by God. And what is this good, what is this truth? This truth we see is the gospel. The truth is quite simply, it's the good news of Jesus. And this is what we see in verse 16. He says, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on and identifies that godliness. It says, he, referring to Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. So what does the church do? Not only is it, it holds to and models truth and confesses truth, 
But lastly, we see that we are called to spread the gospel. This mystery that has been hidden that he talks about, this mystery of godliness is Jesus. This mystery has become manifest in the person of Christ. And Jesus is what holds us all together. Jesus is the foundation of the truth of the life that we live now. The truth upon which the church was built. Now we don't have time to unpack these wonderful statements that Paul writes, declaring and describing Jesus, but I'll walk through them real quickly. He says that Jesus was manifest in the flesh. This is to say that Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God that became flesh to dwell among us. We see that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, which Romans chapter chapter 1 verse 4 states that by the Spirit, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus was seen by angels. So what we're talking about here is that the angels even understand who Jesus is. In eternity past, when when Jesus was present in glory, when Jesus became man, and now even as Jesus is back in glory, sitting at the right hand of the Father, there are angels that testify of his greatness and his lordship. We see that Jesus was preached among the nations. We see this happening in the book of Acts. By the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, Jesus himself was preached among the known world. And even in our day, Jesus is preached among the nations. And when Jesus is preached, what happens? People believe. People come to faith in this gospel, this this truth that we know. And then we know that Jesus was taken up into glory. Jesus, after he resurrected from the dead, after he spent 40 days here on earth with his disciples, Jesus was taken up into glory. And he's accomplished the work. So what is this good news of Jesus? This good news of Jesus is definitely God-centered. right? It's focused in on what God, God's work in redeeming a sinful man. It's the glory of the gospel. And how does God do it? He does it through Christ. So the gospel is Christ-centered. It's through the work of Jesus. Jesus comes, takes on flesh, and lives the life that you and I couldn't so that he could go to a cross and do the work of redeeming us. By his sinless, spotless life, his life became an exchange for our sin. The Bible tells us that on the cross, the sins of man, were placed on Christ, and Jesus endured the wrath of God. So the gospel is God-centered, it's Christ-centered, it's cross-centered, and it's grace-centered. Because there's nothing we can do to earn this. There's nothing we can do to deserve what the work that God has done. And so it's all an act of his grace. So what does all of this do? Well, the gospel requires something from us. It requires us to repent and to believe. The work of Jesus, though it is effective enough for all people of all time to save them from their sins and reconcile them to God, the only way that we get entrance into the family of God and allow our sins to be forgiven is if we repent of our sins and place faith in the work of Jesus. And then the work of the gospel continues because when we repent and place faith, what that does is it produces obedience. Does that make sense? 
That's the beauty of the gospel that transforms every part of our lives. So not only do we need the gospel for salvation, we need the gospel every single day. Because we wake up in the morning and we're like, thank you God for the grace that you helped me walk in. And then we start living our lives, doing it in our own strength and power. And we think, okay, I got this, I got this. And then we realize we don't got this. The gospel reminds us, you don't got this, but God does. Right? And so then when we go awry, we step to the left or to the right of God's plan for our lives. Well, how do we respond? We repent, we trust in God, and then we walk in obedience. This is the life of the gospel. Right? As parents, we parent, we should be parenting from the life of the gospel. Knowing that your child is a sinner. Knowing your child's gonna mess up, and you're not wanting to preach to your child behavior modification, because that damns them to hell. We preach the gospel. Yeah, I know. I know you're a sinner. I, I, I know you, you can't stop arguing with your sister. I know you can't. The gospel tells us you can't. But what you can do is know that Jesus has already obeyed in every way that you've disobeyed. So come to the Father, repent. Repent of the anger that you have towards your sister. And then in faith, believe. And guess what will happen? You'll stop being angry at your sister. It may take time. The beauty of the gospel is what what connects our hearts together. And I'm excited, and I want to leave us with two, um, just, or three application points. Number one, as we're in this series, the Bible does call us, and we're going to talk about this more, uh, as point three says, that we are called to share the gospel. We're, we're called not only to live out the gospel, right, but we're called to share it with our words, like verbally share the gospel. And for some, I know it may be difficult. You may, maybe like people don't want to hear the gospel. People are so against the gospel. What we want to help prepare you to engage in gospel conversations. So starting next Sunday night at six o'clock, we are beginning a six-week study entitled Fishers of Men. And uh, one of my good friends, one of our, our, our brothers and sisters, Sean Lees, is going to be leading this class. He's led it uh, several other times at other churches. And it's a six-week course of where you can come on Sunday night in room 108, right outside those doors. Um, come and be a part of this, this class where it will teach you how to engage with people and share your faith, to share the gospel with others. And sometimes we know you have like 30 seconds to share the gospel, and sometimes you have a lifetime to share the gospel. And so this course will help you in, in all of those scenarios and, on, and in every way in between. So consider doing that. You can go to the website, and uh, you can register for that, or you can just show up for the class as well. That starts next Sunday. And second... I want to encourage you, um, my life group uh, over the next several weeks is uh, going to be doing the study uh, of 1 Timothy. And so I want to encourage you, we're starting next Sunday. We meet at 6 o'clock as well. Um, there's a QR code too, so if you want to download the uh, stuff for this, this study. Um, but in the, my time together is, is our, um, my life group, and you're all welcome to come and be part of it. For the first hour or so of the, our time together, we will study, we'll go through the study of 1 Timothy. And then the last 30 minutes or so, what I thought would be nice is if we could take what we, we learned and what we studied and then like do a lab for our own church. Like ask ourselves the question, how do we see these things showing up in our church 
And what are some ways that we can make them better? Or what are some ways in which we can um, be more faithful to God's word according to that? And so this is something I would love for you to be part of. If you are like brand new to our church and you're like, what is this Woodside thing all about? This would be a great study for you to be a come, to come and be a part of as we walk through 1 Timothy together, studying it, but also discussing it. Because I know on Sunday mornings, it's hard to get feedback. Right? You might have a lot of thoughts right now from some of the things that we've said. Better or worse, you may have a lot of thoughts. Um, but it, this doesn't give you the opportunity to, to, to talk back with it, right? And so I thought if we had a different type of venue where we give some feedback, that would be good. Does that sound good? All right, be a part of those things, okay? Jump in and be a part of that. Well, today, as we come to our time of close, I just want to remind us that, that may, maybe as we've looked at God's word today, that you've forgotten the fact that we're spiritual family. Right, we, we together, that there is no plan B for God's plan to redeem humanity outside of the church. And, and maybe today you just need to, to come to a place of just confessing and just saying, God, you know, I really haven't, I really haven't taken this identity and walked in it. Maybe I, I've known that I'm a believer and I'm a part of this thing called the church, but I never really walked in it. Maybe today that's the commitment that you need to make. Or maybe you're here today and, and you're not even a part of the family of God yet. You've been walking, doing your own thing, and today, for the first time in your life, you realize that you are in desperate need of a Savior. Today, your response simply can be to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Repent of your sins, and by faith, trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Or maybe you're here today and the Spirit's just been moving in a way that, that you've been sensitive to. Well, as we sing this closing song together, do the work between you and the Lord. Maybe there's confession. Maybe there's just a, 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 a words of praise to God for what he's done in your life. But let us now be moved to respond to God's word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your words today. We thank you, Father, that you have done the work to redeem us and to save us. And Father, I pray that we have believed in that. Father, I'm also thankful that you have not called us to live in isolation, but you've called us to live in the family of God together and that we desperately need each other. So, Father, I pray today that you would allow your spirit to work in our hearts. And if there's something we need to confess before you, Father, I pray that that would come out of our tongues. But Father, I also just pray that you, once again, would knit our hearts together. Father, maybe, maybe for a moment as we sing this song, you would help us as a church family to look around and to see the faces of our brothers and sisters that are around us. And Father, if there, we see new faces, Father, may we, after the end of the song, may we go and introduce ourselves to those new faces. Or maybe, Father, as we sing, we look around and we see some faces that are missing. Those that have been a part of our church family in years past. And we don't know where they're at. Father, as we sing this song, may you compel us to check in on those. And see where our brothers and sisters are that might have left. Might have gone missing. But Father, we pray that you continue to do a mighty work. For you are worthy of all of our praise. In Jesus' name we pray.
Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.